Well, good morning. Let me uh, bring you some uh, good news to go with the bad news that Tom just gave you. I don't know if you picked up that we got bad news financially. Tom was so nice about it, but uh, we barely met our legal obligations. That means we're not going to jail, but we're not going to pay anybody unless the giving goes up. So that's what Tom said very nicely just a couple minutes ago. So pay attention to that. Be wildly generous like you were at intermissions. Uh, Last weekend, we had our missions conference. We were able to give $6,000 towards our Northwake church plants. We were able to give another $12,000 for special projects that our missionaries overseas requested, things like um, education for um, church planters, Indian church planters in India to send them to school, Um, a couple of counseling and community centers in Turkey. Some beautiful projects were funded by that. Another $24,000 for the Lottie Moon offering that pays for our missionaries and so many missionaries' salaries around the world. And if you're doing the math, that's $42,000 last weekend that you gave towards international missions. And uh, praise God for that. Thank you for being so generous. God is thrilled, I think, with that. Now, Tom's news and this news means that there was, in some sense, Peter may have been robbed to pay Paul. Okay? That's, that's, that shell game does not work here. We need to be fully generous to both the needs of, of this congregation and missions around the world. So again, uh, the needs of the church are great. I hope that you'll continue to be so wildly generous. But let's thank God for uh, this, these great gifts that he was um, kind enough to give through us last weekend. Let's pray and just thank him for that as we get ready to open the word. Lord, we, we are always... Um, bit overwhelmed when you choose to use us and that kids in India will have clothes and go to school Um, and their parents who are church planters there will not have to worry about that. Um, It's an honor for us to do that, that, that there are women in Istanbul, Muslim women who will step into a counseling center and be encouraged with the gospel because of what happened last weekend, we are thankful to be a part and that our people scattered around the globe will have their salaries paid because of these generous gifts in our church and churches all around the world through this Lottie Moon offering for international missions. We are honored to be a part. And uh, Lord, I know that generosity is important to our health. And so I pray that you would mark us deeply with a joyous, sacrificial generosity in this church. And now as we open up your word, we, we trust it, we submit to it, we welcome it. Uh, though it bring us the hardest of news, we trust that there is good in it for us and for you. For your name's sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. You can open your Bibles up to uh, chapter 5. We are studying it with the intent that we would draw near to Jesus and love and serve him more as a result of studying his life in the Gospel of Matthew. We are kind of um, just uh, dipping our toes in the water of the Sermon on the Mount for about four weeks. This is the fourth of those weeks. We have... Um, looked at um, 
the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus taught, how Jesus used the word. Jeff Doyle led us in that. We looked um, a couple weeks ago at the Lord's Prayer. And today we're going to return to Matthew chapter 5 and look at a couple of verses as kind of a, um, a pointer to us to a broader topic that I want to teach us about this morning that comes from a recent retreat um, Spring and fall, the elders, and most importantly, my wife grants me a week away, uh, alone, holed up in some small cabin, or this was like a motel room in the mountains, and uh, I study and pray uh, for a week, and uh, always God has something that he uh, wants to teach me about or refresh me about during those times. They are essential to the ministry that I do here and essential just to the well-being of my soul. So um, my, my, my sense going in there was that he wanted me to study something I didn't want to study, so I decided I would try to think of something else to study, but I couldn't, so I ended up studying what God wanted me to study. And um, I thought I should sub- subject you to it this morning as well, because it does have its roots in the Gospel of Matthew pretty extensively, and even in the Sermon on the Mount that we're in the midst of. Starting in chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Um, I imagine already you know why I didn't want to study what God wanted me to study. And uh, that is that I I think it was necessary for me to revisit the doctrine of hell and think about what Jesus taught about it and the broader scriptures teach us about it, and most importantly, um, how it is supposed to affect me. Why is this doctrine of hell given to us? What is is it to produce in our lives? And that's what I want us together to think about this morning as we think a little bit about what hell is like, but most significantly about how hell is supposed to affect us us. Um, You know, hell has been variously described throughout history. The ancient Greeks described it as lying face down in a swamp of mud and frogs. Um, Philosopher um, Woody Allen says it's like Manhattan at rush hour. Another writer assures us that it's really no worse than staying at a three-star motel. The scriptures paint a radically different portrait of this this place called hell. And uh, D.A. Carson attempted to summarize that teaching. He says, the New Testament repeatedly warns of the certainty of final judgment and the danger of final ruin. When the Lord Jesus is finally revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power, from 2 Thessalonians. Hell is described as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, from Mark 9. 
a place of outer darkness characterized by weeping and gnashing of teeth from Matthew 8. God's searing holiness is bound up in this wrath from Romans 2 and Revelation 14. God is a consuming fire, and one must be careful not to fall into his hands when he acts in judgment, Hebrews says. There is no escape from hell. There is a great fixed chasm. The door is shut, and the condemned are in dungeons and bound by everlasting change. chains, so says Peter and Jude. The lost suffer the punishment of eternal fire and beatings of greater or lesser intensity, Jesus taught. They suffer everlasting contempt, according to the book of Daniel. This teaching is almost unbearably hard if you actually stop to think about it. Um, and so as a, as a result, people have rejected it outright. Author um, Madeline Langle says, um, belief in hell is lack of faith because it attributes more power to Satan than to God. But it is God who has the last word. God is not going to abandon creation, nor the people up for trial in criminal court, nor the Shiites, nor the communists, nor the warmongers, nor the greedy and corrupt people in high places, nor the dope pushers, nor you, nor me. Bitter tears of repentance may be shed before we can join the celebration, but it won't be complete until we are all there. She is ascribing a belief called universalism. I'm going to use some... Big words uh, today, just to help us with some categories. Universalism, that is that everybody gets saved. In modern parlance, um, people might say love wins. Okay? Everybody gets in. Hell will be emptied. But, if the, of course, that makes nonsense out of Jesus' warning to do everything you can to stay out of hell, to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye. Why bother if it doesn't exist? So universalism is simply not a viable biblical option, as delightful as it sounds. We're not trying to make up a religion. We're trying to find and follow the teaching of Jesus, okay? the teaching of the scriptures, the ancient faith of Christianity. We're not just trying to make up what we, what we like. And so universalism is simply not viable for more reasons than I can go into this morning. Um, in recent days, there are a number, a number of good uh, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing evangelical scholars who have raised, um, though they hold to the doctrine of hell, they have raised questions about one particular aspect of it. That is, its eternality. It's foreverness. And... Um, John Stott expressed questions about this at one point in his ministry. He says it would be strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are, in fact, not destroyed. And what people, what some scholars are proposing is that hell is not forever, that there is perhaps a season of torment or punishment for sins followed by, at the return of Christ most likely, annihilation. Um, destruction. And this, this is another, uh, another big word for you. Um, this is called conditionalism or conditional immortality. And it's rooted in the philosophy that people are not immortal 
because they are made in the image of God. Only the believers are immortal, and they're made immortal by the gospel. So that's the, the roots of it, but it finds its biblical expression in, in repeated language that what happens to unbelievers when they die is that they are annihilated. They perish. Okay? Matthew 10, 28. We'll look at this again for another purpose later. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Conditionalists would say, see, this points to an ultimate destruction. Much more familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Perish, they would say, means perish. Like gone, dead, annihilated, no longer existing. And so... um, The proposal most commonly is that there is a temporary time of punishment for sins. Nobody knows how long. Could be lifetime, lifetimes, decades, centuries. No one knows. But there's a season of punishment for sins that's followed typically at the last judgment by this annihilation. Um, And it seems to me that, um, well, well, this view is one that is increasingly common. You'll probably hear about it. You'll run into people who ascribe to this. And I wanted to um, expose you to that today. There's another view called... It's your third big word, okay? You got universalism, which is not biblical. You've got a new thinking about hell, that hell is not eternal, called conditionalism. If you read the literature on this, there's kind of the standard view, which is called traditionalism, okay? And, and this is far and away the majority view of Christians uh, throughout history, where we have um, believed, based on the teaching of Scripture, that hell is eternal, uh, based on Scriptures like this. Here's one in Matthew. Jesus is teaching And he's talking about the two destinies of believers and unbelievers. He said, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that contrast there between eternal life and eternal punishment um, leads us to think that eternal punishment means eternal punishment. Another example from the book of Revelation talks about the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So most Bible-believing Christians believe in a real devil who is a real being, and it's evident that at least he will be thrown into this um, lake of fire, and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at least there is a place of eternal torment, and at least one being is going to be there, possibly as many as three here with the beast and the false prophet, if those are in fact people. So traditionalists would respond and say that the clearer, most consistent teaching of the scripture is that hell is in fact a place of eternal torment with no end. Now, both of these two positions, excluding universalism, but conditionalism and traditionalism, have 
extensive biblical basis that these teachers are bringing forward. Um, I agree with J.I. Packer. He says that it would be wrong for differences of opinion on this matter to lead to breaches of fellowship. Though it would be a very happy thing for the Christian world if the differences could be resolved. At this point, you may be wondering what our church believes about this matter, about hell, about its um, duration. And it's interesting, especially interesting since I largely wrote it, that, um, that our doctrinal statement does not mention hell explicitly. It does implicitly. We also, though, in our, our church documents, ascribe to the Baptist faith and message. We ascribe to that, and it reads... The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. So I think it would be safe to say that the general teaching of our church would be that um, hell is a place of everlasting punishment. You may be wondering, after my recent reflections on this, and believe me, I've done a lot more reading on hell in recent weeks than I ever wanted to, um, what I think about the duration of hell. And if you, if you know me well, you know that I'm a horrible person to settle controversies because I hardly ever color in black and white. I have like 12 shades of gray in my coloring kit, not 50, 12, okay? Um, and so I am very empathetic towards those who struggle with the idea of not thousands, not millions, but billions and billions of years of suffering. Um, and I have great respect for the work they have done in the scriptures to support that. But I remain inclined towards the traditional view of hell as a place of eternal punishment. That is my best... Um, that is my best understanding of scripture... And I can scarcely bear it. Um, and neither can my iPad. It's crashed twice already in this sermon. Um, which it has never done before. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to quote um, John Stott, who, who says he, is a, he, he embraced at one point in his ministry at least this idea of a conditional immortality. He says, I find the concept of eternal con conscious punishment in hell intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. He says then wisely, but our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And so my best understanding of God's word for you today is that hell lasts forever and ever and ever. And I share all this with you today, not because it is what matters most about hell, but because I believe you will encounter it, and I, want to, I hope it will serve you to have some sense about where the Scripture draws lines and how to deal with those who differ from you. Um, 
But my focus today, what I want us to think about is how is this horrible doctrine supposed to affect us as believers in Jesus? Because it is given to us as a truth in the scriptures for our good. So think with me as we look at some scriptures and think about how the doctrine of hell is to affect us. The first of those effects comes from that teaching that we opened with that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount on hell, where he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, your right hand, which is of great significance in their culture, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Hell is intended to encourage us to flee sin. Whatever it takes, Jesus says, stay away from hell. And he tells you how to do that. He says, do whatever you, it takes to stay free from sin. Sin will drag you down to hell, Jesus is implying. Now, some of you are thinking, and you're thinking biblically, and you're thinking theologically, and you're thinking, why does this concern me as a believer? Because I'm saved and what I am saved from is hell, so why does this worry me? And on the one hand, it just points out to us that sin is the stuff of hell. That if the ultimate fruit of sin is prolonged eternal suffering and despair, why would you want anything to do with sin ever, ever? On the other hand, you don't want to be surprised on the day of judgment and think that you have been spared when in fact you will not be. And Jesus teaches us that there are many people, perhaps good people perhaps, who will be surprised on that day. Look briefly with me at Matthew 25. Jesus is teaching. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they, the ones who have just been damned, will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They were surprised by Jesus' verdict. You don't want to be surprised on that day. 
I don't want you to be surprised on that day. Jesus urges us to do whatever it takes to stay out of hell, and that means taking drastic measures with sin. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, flee from the evil desires of use, flee idolatry, flee all this, he says. Do whatever it takes to be free from sin that would drag you down to hell. What do you need to cut off this morning in order to be free from sin, in order to heed Jesus' admonition? What does that mean for you? Jesus says, tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. Better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus has in this teaching in Matthew 5 an even more significant intent than what I am bringing to the front. This is his, really his secondary intent. And we'll return to his primary one in a few minutes. But what do you need to cut off in order to be free from sin? The doctrine of hell teaches us to flee sin. Okay. I mean, really flee it. There's a second effect that this reality of hell is to have upon us. It is to cause us um, to fear and to trust and to love God more. Let me see if I can show you how each one of those trust, fearing, trusting, and loving God more plays out. Um, because hell very explicitly uh, Jesus says, teaches us to fear God. <clears throat> we already looked at this verse briefly. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If I can put it real kind of street level, <clears throat> Jesus says, it must matter more what God thinks than anyone else. Okay. Fear God. You know, you, you are concerned about what your boss thinks because he could fire you, okay? You're concerned about what your boyfriend or girlfriend thinks because they could dump you. You're concerned about what your teacher thinks they could flunk you. You're concerned about what that police officer thinks because he could arrest you. God wields hell. You know, one of the great misconceptions about hell is that Satan is in charge in hell. Satan is imprisoned in hell. Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's a reference to God. God is in charge of hell, not Satan. You should fear God above all others. What he thinks matters more. Fear him. Obey him. Honor him above all others. The doctrine of hell exalts God above all others. Far above all others. So the reality of hell teaches us to fear God. And it teaches us to trust God. Especially to trust his justice. Um, Isaiah in chapter 35, says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. 
such as the hope of the anxious. Um, Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Again, Paul in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One of the purposes of hell, understanding hell in our lives, is that we can trust justice to God. And we are free from taking justice into our own hands. We are free from vengeance and bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment because there is a coming a day when God will right all wrongs. He'll settle all scores. It's a day when justice will be done. It's a greater, more severe, more just justice than you or I could ever extract. And it's coming. So I am free. I am free to forgive those who have wronged me, to overcome evil with good, to bless those who curse me, to love even enemies. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Um, Have you ever been robbed? Raise your hand if you've ever been robbed. I've been robbed. Do you know, how long did you think about that after you were robbed? Man, I fantasized about catching that guy. We, my friend used to call it shadow boxing. And then I'd catch him. And I, you just, you think about this stuff. And I was just, I just got robbed. That wasn't anything of great significance, okay? Somebody took my stuff. And I could hardly let it go. Some of you have been betrayed and some of you have been abused, and you've been lied to, that can consume you unless you can let it go. And an awareness of God's perfect justice, trusting in that, has the power to set you free. Hell can set you free from having to avenge yourself. So this morning, are you free to love and forgive even those who have done you wrong? This teaching helps you do that as we learn to trust God, especially trust his justice. So the doctrine of hell teaches us to fear and trust and it teaches us <clears throat> surprisingly to love God. We love him because he has rescued us from this nightmarish eternity that we deserve. This is how Paul refers to Jesus. It's one of the beautiful things, uh, one of the beautiful titles given to Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 10. Paul's writing, talking about waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. After all, all that hell is, it's darkness and isolation, it's fire and suffering, Christ has rescued us from it by suffering in our place, 
by conquering death and hell by his resurrection on the third day. John Piper says it's to fill us with wonder that the death of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, could bear the infinite penalty as a substitute for everyone who repents and trusts in him. He says hell is an echo of the glory of God. It reveals the greatness of the glory that's been rejected and the greatness of Jesus' suffering because he bore that hell for all who believe. And so we love him for this. How could you not love someone who would do that for you? There's a sense, some writers say, in which he has borne hell for us. As he was ripped apart from his father on the cross. Some say that was, that was literally his experiencing what hell is like. And if hell is principally marked by separation from, from God, I suppose there's a sense in which that's really true. That the son, for the first and only time in all eternity was separated from the Father by our sins. He bore hell for us so that we wouldn't have to, and we love him for that. Kevin DeYoung says we need God's wrath in order to understand what mercy means. Divine mercy without divine wrath is meaningless. Only when we know that we are objects of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, and stood condemned already, according to John chapter 3, and could have faced, would have faced hell as God's enemies were it not for undeserved mercy, can we sing from the heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so the doctrine of hell teaches us to fear and to trust and to love God all the more. It causes us to flee sin and to worship God and Scriptures teach us that it's a motivation, uh, it's one piece of the motivation um, to help rescue others. Jude urges us in this direction as he writes these good and wise instructions towards the end of his brief letter. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. But there's that phrase, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Martin Marty is a theologian who said, if people really believed in hell, they wouldn't be watching basketball or even TV preachers. They'd be out rescuing people. And... Uh, this is not the time of year for me to take a stand against basketball. Um, but, but if hell is real, as Jesus describes it, shouldn't we be more intentional in rescuing those around us? Go back to John 3.16 again with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The rescue from hell is the, is the very, um, at the very heart of the incarnation. 
If hell is real, how ought that shape the way you pray for your friends and family who don't know Christ yet? How ought that shape your social calendar, the people you have in your home, the people you go out to dinner with? How should that affect how much you give at that intermissions auction next year? See, hell should affect you deeply and propel you to lovingly speak of Christ to neighbors and coworkers and family members and hairdressers and mechanics and people who scan your groceries and who coach your soccer team. How should hell affect the way you speak to the people around you who might face that destiny? Who has God put on your heart to speak of Christ to? One more effect, and I, I cannot leave without underscoring this. Um, back in Matthew chapter 5, our first verses. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is urging that you do whatever it takes to not go to hell. And there are two ways you can stay out of hell. Okay. Um, you can, in the language of Jesus, self-mutilate such that you never sin. Because the wages of sin is death, and that's the death of hell. And I would just say, good luck with that. I think we'll probably hack ourselves to pieces if that's the idea. It's not a very effective strategy for eliminating sin. That would be one way. There is another way. You can either try to be righteous enough on your own by all of your rules and laws and self Restraint, or you can rely on another, another's righteousness. And I think this is Jesus' primary intent in these verses. That there is one who went to the cross for you to bear your sins there so you would not have to. This is the simplest way I've ever heard anyone explain it. It's the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. Um, It's the difference between do and done. Most religions will teach you that the way they get to heaven is by what you do. It's what Jesus is talking about here. (coughs) You do everything you can to stay out of hell. You do what's right. You don't do what's wrong. It's based on what you do, and you end up just hoping that God grades on the curve because you know you're not good enough. If the standard is perfection, you'll never make it. But most religions are based on that idea, what you do. Christianity is based on what is done for you, that you do not have to earn it. In fact, you cannot earn your way back into God's good graces. That has been done for you by what Christ has done on the cross 
where he bore the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him. Isaiah writes about it this way. Um, well, I thought he did, but evidently, evidently he decided not to write about it on that slide. Let me see here. Let's just, we'll just stay with Peter for it right there. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered for sins, for our sins. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might be made right with God. Will you transfer your trust from what you do to what he has done for you today? As we approach the communion table now, instead of coming and partaking of the symbol, you can stay right where you are and you can bow in prayer and you can partake of Christ himself. You can confess your sin and confess that you're not going to rely on your own good works anymore, but you're going to trust in what Christ did for you on the cross. And then you'll follow him all of your days. How should hell affect us? Clearly. Um, clearly. We should worship Jesus who has rescued us from hell. And that's what we want to do now as we approach the table. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this contains my blood, which is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Will you bow with me in prayer?